Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is episode 175. And I have a treat for you this week and next, an absolute masterclass in directing. My guest is Andy Barnacle, and he has directed over 300 full-length plays, including, and more importantly, two of mine. He was also the artistic director for the Laguna Playhouse for 20 years, and I tell you, I learned more just sitting in a rehearsal hall watching him direct than I have learned from every other director I have observed and audited put together. This week we talk a lot about actors and next week we'll get into also the technical aspects of it and blocking etc but if you're interested in acting or you're interested in directing or show business in general this is a great episode for you. Andy Barnacle is going to be our guest and this was a Zoom interview so there's a couple of places where my microphone crackles a little it's a Zoom interview. Um, it's actually pretty decent for a Zoom interview. And what's the alternative? So here we go. Part one of my two-part talk with Andy Barnacle this week on Hollywood and Levine. So the first question is, you started out as an actor. How did you transition into being a director? Um, I think... <laughs> I'll be honest that I, I, I found myself in situations where uh, I thought that I could do a better job than the director was doing. <laughs> you look at you go, you know what? I, I think I should be directing this play. And that's arrogant and ridiculous. And I was, I was a kid, but I, I felt that way and uh, always had it in the back of my head that I would, I would become a director. But um, when I became a college professor, you're sort of obligated to direct plays and I fell into it that way, and I was pretty successful at it from the get-go, and so I sort of gravitated for it. There was a different kind of reward to it than when you're an actor, and um, that was what led me to it, you know, particularly. But I never, I never thought that I would only become a director. The, what happened to me was that when I was a, a undergraduate, and I just gotten out of high school, and I enjoyed doing theater so much that... I said to myself, I wanted my career to be 
in the theater. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I wanted it to be in the theater. So I started studying every aspect of the theater. Uh, I was a designer at one point. I, I designed lights at one point, sets, and um, I became a, a theater history professor. So it was everything about the theater that was what I loved. Um, and whether or not I was going to be just an actor or just a director or whatever, I, it didn't matter to me as long as my career was going to be in the theater. So I had become pretty much a jack of all trades. Uh, everything but, but playwriting, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I've written a few little things. They're in the drawer over here. Uh, <laughs> they'll, 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 be, they'll win Pulitzer's posthumously, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yes, exactly, everything but playwriting. So what was it like your first time? I mean, it's one thing to want to be a director and think you can do it. And I remember, for me, the first time I directed a television show and I'm standing on stage and the actors are looking at me like, okay, what do you want? It was terrifying. <laughs> well, I think the very first play I directed was uh, Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap. And it was in uh, Summerstock in my college, in my undergraduate school in Illinois, outside of Chicago. And I'm sure I was a terror to these, you know, community actors, college kids. <laughs> and I, I'm, <laughs> I just think back on it now and I'm, I, I'm not... I'm not surprised that none of them are in contact with me anymore. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I don't have any Facebook friends from that production. Yeah, three of them just tuned out of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> that's 1975, you know, but, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, ha, I was, I was a Martinet, I'm sure. Um, and, but over time I've, I've learned how to sort of be part of a production rather than try to be the production. Well, let's talk a little bit about dealing with actors since that's the primary part of your job. Uh, you know, I've noticed each actor has its own process and they're very different. And your job is to somehow get them all at their peak on opening night or filming night or whatever. How do you do that? How do you juggle all the, the different uh, processes that these actors have that really only comes from experience and I, I can only say that I've been involved and I think as an actor or a director or a producer or a designer over 300 plays so there's not much that an actor can show me in rehearsal that I haven't seen before. I'm very seldom surprised by, I mean, not, not necessarily the choices they make, but the problems they might have or the issues they might have learning lines or something like that. I've seen it all. And you kind of learn how to deal with each of those individual problems as they arise in front of you. You go, yes, I recognize this guy. He's going to be slow to get off of the book, I can tell. So I got to just give him everything I, I can give him to make it easier for him and not put pressure on him because that only makes it worse. Um, I think that in television, I'm, I'm going to assume, because I've never directed any television, but I'm going to assume it's a little bit different because the time limitations are so extreme that you basically cast somebody based on what they've, they did in their audition or what they've done previously that you're familiar with, and then you expect them to just go ahead and do that. And they kind of know that, and everybody knows that. So it all just falls, theoretically, it all just falls into place. I, I wonder, I would ask you, do actors surprise you in a television, in a half-hour sitcom, 
do they surprise you and suddenly become altogether different than they were in their audition? Yes, because, because they'll do an audition and then they'll go off and they'll do 15 more auditions and then they get the part on our show and then they report like a week later and by the time they report, they have no memory as to <laughs> what they did. <laughs> so yes, they come on and, and they're doing something completely different and you're going, wait, what what, you, what are you what, doing? Who are you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, That's not who we hired. The identical twin that they sent to do the Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that was, that's always kind of interesting. You mentioned memorization and this is especially true for plays. I, I'm not an actor and I don't play one on television. And uh, part of the reason why for me is to memorize an entire play just seems phenomenal to me. That, that's like saying, go, go climb Everest, is to learn a 100-page play. How do you deal with actors who are also struggling with memorizing? Because you only have a certain amount of time. Well, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that what, it, it, memorization is a muscle that actors develop early and it's something that they have to get used to. And then the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Uh, my, the, the thing I always used to say was, you know, if you can't memorize, if you can't memorize lines, it's like, if you can't swim, you shouldn't be on the water polo team. You know what I mean? Because right. you're going to be in trouble. And if you can't memorize lines, you really, you shouldn't be an actor, but it's something that actors learn to do early. And I've always said this to people who, are, who marvel at it. I've said, how many songs do you know the words to? And and people go, oh yeah, you're right. I know the I know the lyrics to dozens or even hundreds of songs. If you play the music, I can sing you the words because you've heard them over and over and over again. It's all about repetition. And so <clears throat> actors need to take the script <clears throat> and, and break it into into manageable chunks, memorize them one at a time, and all of a sudden you know everybody knows the words to the Star Spangled Banner or you know the Pledge of Allegiance, and that's because they've repeated it so many times that it just comes naturally to you. And that's what actors have to do under any circumstances. I, I will it's, I will say that it, it gets a little more difficult as you get older. Um, and I now, as an actor, I have to spend more time walking around my dining room table in circles with a script in my hand, memorizing my lines. And when I was a even the college kid, I just read the script three times and put it down and started talking. But uh, it, it, it is something that actors just take for granted, quite frankly. Well, uh, it's something that as as a writer is very important to me that they say the words as written because I worked very hard to put the words in <laughs> that order. And one thing I appreciated about you is you were really a stickler for the text. You just wouldn't let yeah. them paraphrase because some actors like to do that. You know, they go, well, I got the gist of the line. Well, that doesn't yeah. help if it's a joke line. Yeah, no, I, I know that. And, and it, to me, you know, uh, the director is an interpretive artist. The actor is an interpretive artist. The playwright is really the 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 true creative artist in, in active theater. And that work has to be protected because you can't let everybody just run amok. You know, I can't rewrite somebody's play. 
especially if he's sitting right behind me in the rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's it was important to me, and I've, I've worked with a number of of established playwrights on on world premieres, and I'm always that way. And I think I think they all they have appreciated that I'll defend the text. Um, and I, but I also think that there are there have been times that that I've I've looked at established playwrights and said. What do you what do you mean when you've written this? What is this supposed to mean? And they'll go, I don't know. What do you think it means? And that's that always that always like irritated me that I couldn't get them to be specific about what it was they were actually writing. And I I would ask you again. I'd say how much of what you write just sort of happens, and how much of it is exactly. I've looked at this a hundred times, and this is exactly the way I want to be. Or I just sort of wrote it and it's kept writing itself, and all of a sudden it was finished. Well. It's interesting because one thing that you do that we don't in television because we don't have the time, but you would spend the first few days doing table work where you just sat around a table and talked about the script. And there were times when you would ask me about specific lines and I would always have an answer because my feeling is as a playwright, if I can't defend what I wrote, then it shouldn't be there. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Agree. But there were also times when you would explain to the actors in detail what I was saying. Now, this line means you're sort of defensive here, but you don't want him to know it. And then your line, you understand, but you deflect. And, you know, and you, you work all of that out. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, that's... That's true, but I wasn't thinking any of that <laughs> when I was writing it. I well, was just thinking, well, what would he say? <laughs> because you were writing it to express what you were feeling, and I'm thinking about how do I get an actor to ha- to be able to make a choice about it. And the, those are two different things. You know, there's there's three elements to any message. There's there's the the, the message sender that would be you. There's the message receiver that would be the actor, and then there's the message itself. <laughs> those are three <laughs> different things, and somehow we all got to tie a string to those things and get them in the same place. Mostly, uh, I when I'm directing, I try to think like an actor and say, "Why is this actor struggling? What does this mean?" And when I'm acting, I try to think like a director and go, "What is what is he trying to tell me here? You know, how do I understand this?" Because there there are different elements of something like this and the actor is usually the last guy to know what's actually going on um and and that's why this collaboration is it's so important that everybody tries to be patient and understand each other but i know that on tv series you guys sit around at least for a day right at the first day of the, of the week and do table reads and and you must talk about something right? we do table reads um we talk briefly yeah. with the cast then we as the writing staff go back and we talk it out endlessly and do our rewrite, but it's, it's a a little bit different. You know, one of the things I know that actors hate when you have parentheticals, when, you know, you're saying, um, you know, indignant or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and they, they hate when you underline certain words, but my feeling is if there is a line that can be interpreted three different ways based on how you say it, and I want it interpreted a specific way, 
then I'm going to yeah. indicate it. Yeah, you have to be careful with things like that because if it's a, if it's like a rocket to the moon, if it's slightly off, it could, it could be very damaging. It's like, you know, help your Uncle Jack off the horse. <laughs> you know, if you say that wrong, you get yourself in a lot of trouble. But uh, I think I think actors don't like being given line readings. They, they Actually, they hate that. They consider that, that that's you getting inside their souls and, and manipulating them from within. And um, that, that really is an irritant. And I've developed a, a system over time of, uh, you know, I can hear an actor just not saying something properly. You can hear it. It's clear as a bell to me that he's got this wrong. And I, you know, the actor is saying to be or not to be, that is the question. I go, let's go back and do that one more time. The actor goes to be or not to be. That's the question. I go, you need to look at how you're saying that. It's not quite right. And he goes, to be or not to be, that is a question. I go, okay, can we can we take it from where Hamlet says, to be or not to be? And <laughs> he doesn't hear it then. <laughs> and then I know I've got a problem. But usually that they come around. And and there are times, too, when, when I might have been the one misinterpreting a line. And and they'll listen to it a couple of times. And I'll say, you know what, that's okay. You could, you could have that. That's yours. But they don't like it when you encroach in, into their sort of their very essence, which is, saying lines, saying words. On the other hand, I think that I remember when I was teaching that I had a, a colleague who used to say, you know, if you, if you can read a line, you can be taught how to act. But if you can't read a line properly, if you don't understand what a line sounds like and, and how it should be read, then it's probably going to be really hard to teach you how to act. So that was the, the, the sort of the, the basic, that was the, the starting line of, of actor training was, can you make sense out of, I'm going to the store now, do you need me to pick anything up for you? But if it comes all, you know, cockamamie out of that, and because I'm going to the store now, do you need anything for me to pick up for you? Then, you know, you, you, know, you should go back to wherever you were because you're not trainable. Um, and that was sort of the essence of it. Yeah, there are people that come in for auditions and they'll read a line and you go, what is... What is going through your mind? I don't even understand your thought process. <laughs> how you could read the line that way? You know, know. you're, I, you're I, looking at the script, going, yeah. "Well, like the other forty people got it right. What, what, <laughs> what are you doing?" I know, but but also sometimes that kind of unusualness. Uh, is is indicative of somebody who's who's very special. Yeah, it's Christopher Walken or Michael J. Pollard. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and it's something is something unusual becomes sort of brilliant, and you can't deny it. And it's just because it's not ordinary, and that's right. what makes it makes it fun. If it's the right part, sure. Yeah. What about dealing with difficult actors? What about dealing with actors who give you pushback? I, I've learned how to avoid that over time <laughs> just by not <laughs> questing them. But you know, it happens every once in a while. And like I said, I've, I've, there's almost always a reason for it. And I've dealt with it enough times in my long career that I recognize generally that there, if, if somebody's grumpy or brooding or something like that, they go, well, there's something wrong with this guy. I got to just, you know, figure out how to talk to him or, or ask him what's up or what is it about me or the play or what I'm asking him to do that he doesn't like. And we could sort of negotiate that uh, to a point. If, if it's a point where it's, it was really bothering the ability of the production to move forward in rehearsal, then, you know, you have to take more drastic measures. But for the most part, 
I don't, it, it doesn't happen to me. And it's also why we like to work with actors we're familiar with, that we've worked with before, that sure. we know, and we have a shorthand with, and we understand that that's the biggest, the better way to solve that problem is to not let it happen to begin with. In in your television case, I don't think you have that choice really. You no, other people you don't. Casting for <laughs> you, and and you just they walk in, you walk into the room, and you've inherited all these actors. I mean, I, how much input do you have into casting when you're directing a, a television show? Um, well, if I'm a you know a freelance director just coming in on an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond, then no, I don't have any say at all. And in one case, I was directing an episode where the guest actress is someone who years before I had to fire (laughs) and and wouldn't speak to me for like, two, three years. And, and I'm going, Oh God, now I got to deal with her for a a week on this show. And, and I figured, well, you know, if push comes to shove, they'll replace a guest actor. They won't replace the director. So it kind of behooves her to get along with me. And she came on the first day and it was like none of the previous four years had happened. She was my best friend. friend. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she yeah, figured yeah. that out. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that that you know, actors they are in the, they are human. We all have a shared understanding of certain things that we all have to do in certain parts of the hierarchy that we all have to respect. But inside that structure, you know, everybody is an individual and they, they're going to deal with it in their own sort of way. And I think that, that some actors don't like direction and they push back at it and they prefer the director wasn't even there. And some actors can't do anything without direction. That's a spectrum. And I think the, the director has to recognize that and understand where that actor stands in that spectrum as early as possible so that we can get the work done. And there are also some actors who just love to rehearse and rehearse. And there are others that want to rehearse very little because they feel it costs them their spontaneity. Yeah. They're wasting good takes Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) in the rehearsal room. I agree. I agree. I, I notice when you give notes, you will call the actors by the character names which we never do in television. Is that a theater thing or is that yeah, an Andy it is, Barnacle it thing? Is, it is something I was taught. And uh, I, it's interesting. <laughs> I have actors who I directed in a play five years ago and I don't know their names. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> that by their character names. I see them at gatherings and opening nights and stuff and I go, hi, uh, uh, Heathcliff, how are you? You know, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, it's something that we were sort of taught to do uh, early on to help them in the rehearsal room stay in character. It's sort of by, by, by calling, by telling Stanley Kowalski, Hey Stanley, if you would come over here and talk to them as if they were the character and it's, it's subliminally supposed to help them be more, you know, separate themselves, uh, be more the character and less themselves in the rehearsal room. It's, it's part of the method. You know, a lot of actors just want to stay in character all the time this i think is theoretically going to help them do that a little bit i don't take it that seriously it's the habit i got into uh giving giving directions to characters instead of actors and it helps everybody sort of remind themselves that we're in a fictitious world 
What about actors speak? You know, when actors go, well, I'm not activating my choices or I'm not finding my emotional triggers here. Um, do you do you know what that is? Or I don't know. Because you know, I sometimes I, I, say, you, what does that mean? I don't understand what we that work is. Together such enough a thing? You know that I don't have much patience for that. <laughs> I just kind of roll my eyes and go, yeah, okay, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and make it work this time. <clears throat> there, uh, there's a... There's a wonderful, somebody posted on Facebook the other day, a wonderful thing. It was like, I want all actors to, to name uh, or to write down the best, the weirdest or best or most interesting bit of direction they've ever received. And there's like 800 responses to this of strange <laughs> things that directors have said to people. And it, it really gets pretty funny. I mean, the, you, sometimes you have to sort of hunt through the language of what a director is telling you and try to understand what he's saying. And a lot of directors are inhibited about being direct to actors. They try to say it in a nice way. They try to give you a hint and they try to sort of put you in a place to discover it yourself, which in my opinion, oftentimes is just a waste of time that you could say to somebody, you need to go faster here because the, the place slowing down and, and we're building momentum. We can't afford for it to stop while you ruminate, you know, and, and find your, your triggers. But, but I think most actors, know that at some point they they can't rely on those kind of things those those are crutches of why they're not able to do what it is they want to do now because they need all this time and build it up and those those actors that sit around preparing for five minutes before they can go into a scene Mm -hmm. I, i i don't have that's not craft that's that's something else and i don't generally have my much patience for it, you know, I'll let it happen. But I just remember uh, I was a young actor and one of my first professional productions and we're doing a production of View from the Bridge and we can't find the girl, the leading lady. And she, everybody's looking around the rehearsal room and I poked up my head outside the door and she was over in the corner hiding her face in the corner and and I walked over to her. I said, you're on, it's your cue. And she goes, I'm, I'm preparing. And I said, you know, when you get a job on some cruise ship, they're not going to give you time for this. Now I'm going to throw you overboard. <laughs> and she didn't speak to me for the rest of the, rest of the run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember Dabney Coleman, I asked him once, what is the worst director note that you ever received? <clears throat> and he said, director said to me once, cut, Dabney, no, anything but that. <laughs> 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 do it again be better yeah yeah how do you make comedy work how do you make comedy work it, generally you have to understand the structure of a joke uh and and where the reversal comes in the joke is the important thing where is the surprise in the joke what it, 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 sometimes it's a punchline sometimes it's a comment sometimes it's just a rhythm thing but generally it, it goes you got to go to the Catskills, quite frankly, and understand how comedians put jokes together and how humor works. Um, and you have to recognize the difference between a, a, a joke that's structured to be just a joke or something really funny that happens because of a situation that a character is in that's honest to them. And they say something that is just ironic and, and funny. Um, and when you understand the sort of eight different ways that a joke can be structured, then you recognize them when you see them and then you can help an actor if they don't get it you can help an actor either tee it up 
not, and, and, and whack it out of the park. Uh, and some jokes aren't intended to do that as well. Some jokes are intended to just g- gently glide to, to their right. landings, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and not all jokes are guffaws. Some are just these things that make you smile a little bit and learn something about the character. Um, and so that, for me, comedy isn't necessarily what's funny. I mean, the, the, technical, the technical definition of, of comedy in theater is just a play that where everybody ends up happily and nobody dies. It isn't necessarily that there's, a, there's 22 jokes on, uh, in every paragraph, uh, whereas, you know, a tragedy is the opposite of that. <clears throat> Somewhere in the middle is a tragic comedy. But, but a comedy is generally something that's, that everybody ends up with a positive experience. The characters all end up positively. And so re- identifying jokes inside a play can be a problem. And I know that a lot of plays because of Neil Simon is the guy who started all this, that a lot of plays try to have jokes just because they think that's what's going to make the play successful. And to some degree, it makes the play a little more palatable and a little more acceptable and a little more easier easier to watch. But if the jokes start sounding like they're playwrights' jokes and not characters' jokes, it goes on the other side of the it's line. Tiresome. It's tiresome. Yeah. It's hard to reel it back in and hard to get people to take the actual, the actual action of the play seriously because these people are just too clever with the one-liners. Now, Neil Simon was the master at that, at making characters say funny things because they were clever people. Um, and so that's, that's why he was so successful. But ultimately, the Simon-esque gags became sort of a, uh, an opiate that playwrights sort of have, have sort of latched onto, but without the basic underlying characters and plots of the Neil Simon plays, they don't always work. And, th- and that's a fine line that playwrights have to tread. And as a director, it's a fine line for me to have to say, how do I get this actor to believe that in the need to say this thing that I think is only there because a playwright thought it would be funny? It's a puzzlement. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy working with the playwrights? I do. I, I, I really do. I've, I've, that's been probably the highlight of, of my career is doing a, during world premieres or commissioned work in a couple of cases with playwrights who are, are very well known like yourself, uh, uh, Richard Dresser, uh, Bernard Farrell of the Abbey Theatre in Ireland, and having them in the room with me uh, while I kind of dissect, I've never been afraid to have the playwright in the room with me. There's a lot of directors who don't want the playwright anywhere near them while they're rehearsing a play. You know, you can be there for the first reading, then get out, and you can come back for dress rehearsal, and and we can ask you some questions then. But I've never been afraid to have the playwright in the room with me, uh, not because uh, uh, I'm. Uh, I, I feel like you know I'm above that, but mostly because I want them to know that I'm protecting their work and that I'm working really hard with these human beings in this room to get it right. And if there's something that can be adjusted to make that easier, maybe they can even help me do that. So there have been rewrites of some of these world premieres. Um, and you've done a whole, you do them yeah. every day. <laughs> every day I rewrite. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you, your, uh, your computer is always set on, <laughs> on rewrite. <laughs> so, and, and I remember that, which one it was, but we had like multicolored pages, <laughs> red, green, yellow, and blue. Was that going, going gone? I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think so. Pages, but it was a rainbow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing as a director though, that, that I learned was that when I am in the room as a playwright, 
you deal with the actors. I could imagine that if the playwright was shouting out notes and the actors are going, well, wait yeah. a minute, who do I listen no. to here? Yeah, it's, it you is know? kind of important that, that the playwright knows. And I, I always usually talk with the playwright about that and say, it would be immeasurably helpful to me if you didn't talk to the actors right. when I wasn't there. You know? right. uh, and, and, if you, and if you have suggestions you want to make or things you, you're thinking about to go through me. And I know that because when I'm working with you, I know that early on in the rehearsal period, I remember you would scratch your head and go, when, when's he, when are they going to get this? When are they going to get this? And I would say, Ken, we're in the first week of a four-week <laughs> rehearsal period. <laughs> it's going to take a while. And, and they're, they're, it's gonna, we're going to lead them there. And I remember you being impatient when we, the first time we worked together, not so much the second time we worked together, uh, with Going, Going, Gone. You know, I want to go back to that thing about jokes and plays. With Going, Going, Gone, you created a room full of extremely clever people, which is why they were in that room, which is what made their jokes so natural and so, you know, cause and effect. It, 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 was, it was clearly a case of these are special people. You put them in a room together and you expect that from them. And you knew that from your experience being in a, in a broadcast booth in, in Dodger Stadium. Um, and so that's helpful to have a circumstance where the people are are necessarily clever or they would or they don't belong there you know if you're if you're if you can't duke it out with the other boys in the room get out of the booth <laughs> right you don't belong here and i've been in circumstances like that you know when you're on a, a baseball team or something with it you better hold your own or, or you're gonna get killed so yeah <laughs> And that will do it for part one of my two-part interview with Andy Barnacle. Next week, we get into more talk about actors and also uh, blocking and design and costumes and all the various other aspects that a director has to deal with. Anyway, that is next week. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, also Bruce and Jason Miller. I have an email address, should you wish to correspond, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm also on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. And if you're on iTunes, please subscribe. I would love a five-star review. Part two coming up next week with Andy Barnacle. Stay safe. I will talk to you then. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.